This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Hello, how are you doing? I am here with you at 100 Words or Less, the podcast, and I'm Ray Harkins. And I realize that uh, 100 Words or Less is still confusing for many of you (laughs) because I was actually, so I was at a party this weekend, which is weird to say, but, um, you know, just because I'm not really a party guy, but, and I was explaining this podcast to somebody and, uh, you know, they were older and, and they're not connected to our music scene at all. So I was telling them about a hundred words or less. And they were like, what does that have to do with music? And I was like, well, nothing really. <laughs> Just the fact that, you know, in school, uh, when you're older, uh, or if you're older of a certain generation, you know, you were often told, uh, in a hundred words or less summarize this book or this, this, uh, paragraph of thoughts or whatever. And, uh, yeah, that is, that is lost that no one under the age of, uh, I would have probably guessing like 35 would have any idea that that was a thing that happened in high school. But anyways, for those of you that still are are curious about the name, that's why it is what it is. And it's not related to music really, except the fact you can look at the logo and you'd be like, oh, there's records in there. So a hundred words or less. Got it. Anyways, that's a little, uh, what what etymology, isn't that the uh, dissection of words? So. That's a little etymology lesson for the day. But you did not come for that. You came for the core, the punk, the independent music, the guests. And the guest this week is Sonny Singh. He is from Hate Five Six, and he is an incredible documentarian of our beautiful music scene because uh, he films professionally. He films all of these band sets from festivals, from shows, multiple angles like you 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 got it if you can't see a band for whatever reason and you want to see them you will be able to consume Sonny's videos and you know to be honest this is a trend that has popped up uh you know probably i would say in the you know once handheld video cameras of of a variety of quality started to happen in the you know mid to late 2000s it started to uh kind of boom all over the place but uh, I'll be honest, there's only two people in my mind that have done it very successfully. Uh, one of them is a close friend who, uh, you know, died tragically, uh, Chris Avis and, uh, yeah, Sonny Singh. Those are basically the only videos that I watch from a professional perspective. So, uh, yeah, Sonny does great work and, uh, people had requested for him to be on the show for quite some time. And finally we made it happen. I was like, after either another email or tweet or something, we're, a person suggested Sonny. I was like, all right, let's, let's do this. I gotta roll up my sleeves. I gotta, I gotta figure this out. So, cause you know, I mean, it's not the person, the interviewee's job 
to go like, hey, I want to appear on your show, which happens from time to time. But that's not Sonny's job. That's my job. So anyways, that's uh, that's what we have. But you probably care about band merch, right? And you are probably aware or tangentially aware of rockabilia.com. If you are not familiar, you need to get familiar because they have over half a million, 500,000 different items on their web store. And uh, they'll be having some uh, some taken merch up there. Not too, uh, not too long. But uh, PC Jabberjaw. PC Jabberjaw is the code that will get you 15% off your first order. And they have so much great stuff. Like you think of a hardcore band, you think of a metal band, you think of a pop act. They have it. And you'll be able to order it all from one convenient place as opposed to like, all right, I'm going to go to this band camp and buy a shirt and then I'm going to go to some other place and then, you know, pay postage, you know, seven times. No, you don't need to do that. They Rockabilly has great customer service. I've interacted with them. They're awesome. Fast shipping. They ship from the uh, Midwest and a uh, co-owner is a hardcore kid. Shout out to Frankie. So yeah, there's really no other reasons besides all that, that, that laundry list of things that I gave you to, uh, support this business. So yeah, PC Jabberjaw, 15% off, please do that up and it will uh, support this show in turn. So we appreciate their partnership. And, uh, what, what else do I have that I want to tell you? I want to tell you, I went to a show recently, which, you know, isn't like a momentous occasion in and of itself, but, uh, I went to a DIY space called uh, riff mountain, which is uh, located uh, in the great city of Fullerton here in Southern California. I saw Tony Molina and Jem and some other great bands and it was, um, it was a great show. I had a fun time, even though the show, and granted, this is, you know, advertised, so I wasn't, like, surprised that the show started at 11 p.m., but I was like, man, I'm I'm an old dude. Like, getting me out to a show at 11 p.m., like, it's got to be really good, and it was really good, but, uh, yeah, it's just, it, you know, now that I go to shows, I definitely am acutely aware of all of the things that I prefer what shows to be. And, uh, the fact that I'm like, okay, yeah, like I'm, you know, one of the oldest people in the room and that doesn't bother me. It's just a, an observation, so to speak, but the show is great, super loose, super, uh, fun, uh, as far as the, uh, the, the setup was concerned. And then, yeah, I actually got to meet uh, a few people who were fans of the podcast and they just like straight up came up to me and started talking to me about, Hey, I really like the episode that you had with uh, Christina from Gaujo A recently. I was like, Oh damn, you're on top of it. You just listened to this week's episode, like, you know, a couple days after I released it. So I, uh, I really appreciate all of you that, uh, that recognize me, <laughs> you know, cause I mean, technically people are recognizing me for something that is not uh, rock based but you know the podcast is as a form of of music in a way i guess but anyways the uh, and i hope you like the term rock ignition because i think it's really funny i can i did not invent it but i heard it somewhere and i thought it was really funny so anyways uh sunny great chat and we uh, we go to a lot of places and he you'll hear, hear at the very very end of the uh, conversation that uh, he's like yeah i i've never really got to share this stuff out in a you know more formalized interview so Great stuff. Here is Sunny, and I will talk to you after the episode is over. Reaching in the back of my my memory banks of when I first, you know, uh, tripped on 
hate five, six. And I want to say it was around like 2010 or so when, um, you know, our mutual friend who, you know, died tragically, Chris Avis, like once, uh, you know, I mean, he, he, I met him in like, you know, mid two thousands when he was recording the bands that I played in. And then I, you know, I, I think either he may have said something about you or whatever. I just, I, this, this whole, you know, online documenting like hardcore band world was just so vibrant and cool with what he was doing and what you were doing, which was, you know, basically making sure these sets were preserved for time. And the hustle like was so apparent for what I saw you doing. And then what I saw Chris doing as well. And it almost feels like when a person trips on, you know, what you're doing, it's almost like discovering a new band where you're just like, Oh my God, it's like a treasure trove. There's all these records I got to like look at and videos I got to look at. <laughs> do people like do people kind of express that sentiment to you like when they discover you like oh my gosh like i didn't even know this thing existed now this is the best thing ever like what sort of feedback do you get from that perspective yeah no i hear from people i hear from all kinds of people i hear from people um who either used to be really into hardcore like in the 80s or 90s and fell out of it and then they stumble upon my site and they're just like holy shit there's all these new bands and the site is what gets them to come out to shows again so that's like that's like a really cool thing um, I also hear from people who, um, you know, they, they, so in the last, so, you know, I, obviously I have hate56.com, but in the last couple of years, I started uh, mirroring all my content on, on YouTube, uh, mostly to get like, and so basically hate56 is good for people who know, uh, are, who already know about the site or know someone who knows about the site. Um, but YouTube, putting stuff on YouTube has allowed other people to just like, trickle in and just like stumble upon stuff. So, you know, code orange might play like a big metal fest and, you know, the kid's going to go home and he'll go on YouTube, search for code orange. He'll find one of my code orange videos. And then he or she will start like digging through the page and they'll be like, Oh my God, like there's all these other bands. And so I do hear from both sides of that coin where it's, you know, it's, it's new, it's, you know, new blood that, you know, they may have stumbled upon something on YouTube and then they just start diving into just all these other, you know, the whole ecosystem of bands um, or on the flip side, I hear from people who, you know, know what hardcore is, but may have, they've, you know, they've fallen off the map because of life, school, family, whatever. And, uh, they sort of rely on the site to, you know, get a sense of all the new stuff that's going on. So it's, it's really cool to hear. Um, for me, when I started this, it was always just about, you know, can, can, can a high quality video of bands be a, medium to connect people to music and it seems to be the case that uh, that's that's true so uh in that sense i feel like i have achieved what my goal has been from the beginning right right and it's cool too because i think you know similar to what you're saying where there especially you know once festivals became this you know flashpoint for hardcore in the mid 2000s well you know even earlier than that with hellfest and everything where but you know at that time the documentation of said things was so limited to just basically like hey we're gonna put out a dvd once every couple years you know like doug spannenberg is gonna put this together and that we'll get something cool but like now the you have these bands having these sets at fests that you know just like completely blow people's minds and then the people that can't attend watch it too and it's like you know it's captivating on like more than one level and it gets spread like wildfire in places that just, you know, you would never like a band is not cognizant of how much that set will be meaningful in the future, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> it's just it, it's cra- it's just weird because normally, you know, uh, in the past, it would be like, oh, yeah, like, you know, I remember, you know, Touche More 2009 at, you know, Sound and Fury. It was like that. That's when things kind of change for them. And now people can be like, 
oh, I see why that, <laughs> why that was. Yeah, you know? it's actually right. It's 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 uh, you can actually point to it and actually like, dive into it and di- dissect it a little bit more. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's an it's you know it's an I think it's an important archive, uh, not just my project, but just like anyone who's filming shows. It's a chronicle of the evolution of a band and evolution of a scene, and I think that like in terms of being able to look back and tell stories and like the, sort of like the oral history of hardcore or punk, whatever it is, like it's good to have these sort of documents that you can reference to say, you know, oh, that code orange set from 2014 at this is a was like the moment they blew up or 2015, whenever it was. And, uh, so for me, I think it's, uh, important to be able to have those references, um, because it just makes, uh, it makes preserving the, the history, um, much more, I feel like true to the experience. Sure, sure. This is something I was going to ask a little bit later, but it seems appropriate to bring up now where, um, you know, when you are watching a band and you, you know, you don't have a, a phone or a camera in front of you, um, there is that, you know, visceral connection that, that people have, especially when you're talking about hardcore and you're watching like a special set or something and something that you feel the energy in the room, um, you know, I, I presume because you are, uh, you know, very concerned about making sure that this is documented appropriately. Like, does it, um, I, I guess it does it kind of dull the experience initially, but then when you look back at the footage, is that kind of when it kicks back in again, or do you feel it kind of all around? Uh, are you asking, like, does, do I feel like the experience is dull while, while I'm filming it? Yeah. Just because you are so like technically, you know, involved in making sure that this is appropriately documented. Yeah. I mean, so it's funny. I had, um, a couple years ago, this must've been like 2010. I, I wanted to film, uh, the evens in DC. So I hit up Ian Mackay and, uh, I think I talked to him before the show and he was like, Oh, you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm cool with you filming, but and he, then he started going on, uh, and I love Ian, but he went on his sort of like philosophical, uh, approach where he's like, don't you think you're, you know, cheating yourself out of the experience by, keeping your, you know, having a lens that separates you from the moment. And I, you know, I thought about it and I said, no, like when I'm filming a band, I'm engaged with, an, with, with the set in a certain way. You know, I might not be dancing and moshing and all that stuff, but I'm also, you know, I am listening to the music and I'm, you know, I'm not just standing there pointing the camera at the band. I'm looking for, you know, things that are happening in the crowd. I'm looking for someone who's, I'm trying to capture the moment both res- with respect to the band, but also with the audience. So for me, when I'm filming, um, I feel like I'm engaged with this, with the, with the music and the, and the performance in a very unique way, uh, such that, you know, I'm, I'm responding to how the music makes me feel. So a lot of people complain that I have a very shaky camera style, which is fine, but, um, I, I try to compliment, you know, my camera movements, I try to compliment with how I'm, with what the music's making me feel. So if they're, you know, if I'm filming vain and there's a very erratic part of the set where people are just like thrashing around and, uh, I, I try to film that, uh, in a way that's reflective of how the music is making me feel. So when I'm seeing vain, I'm, I'm, I'm getting hit from all kinds of all, all sides from people bumping into me. I'm dodging stage divers. I'm trying to capture the guitarist thrashing around. I'm trying to capture the person in front of the stage, you know, punching himself in the face. And so naturally the video is going to reflect that by being shaky. So I think that, um, I don't find that filming dulls the experience for me. I think it heightens the, it heightens my awareness because I'm, I'm constantly looking for what is that moment at this specific time that's going to capture, uh, what the set represents. So I'm constantly looking for the small details and zooming in or zooming out or panning over to it. So 
Um, for me, it's I, I definitely get a high from from filming. But I mean, there are definitely cases and times when I'm like, "Fuck, I really wish I was just like in the crowd singing along and not stuck behind a camera." So. Yeah. Um, but, it, it, it does happen. I'm not going to lie. That, that there, there are times when that happens. Yeah. Oh, sure. But I mean, it, it, especially too, I think with the, um, the, you know, the concerted effort that you have from, you know, your, you, your, honestly, your manifesto and what you are trying to accomplish with, with hate five, six is definitely like, Oh, like this is, you know, this is going to sound so like overdramatic, but like <laughs> capturing this is the, you know, this mission is greater than like my actual, you know, fleeting enjoyment like i want more people to have enjoyment from this thing than like you know my mosh pit experience or whatever right no it it does sound dramatic but i think there is a little bit of truth to that it's uh you know i mean i I do it because i like it but i also know that there are people out there who are going to find value in having these sets filmed so for me it's like okay you know i'll i'll go shoot the show that i don't really care about but i know that someone is gonna uh, watch it and enjoy it and you know um for me that sacrifice is worth it yeah, totally. No, that's that's cool. Um, I'll, I'll hit more on that in, in a bit. But the uh, you know, kind of focusing on you as a person, uh, I know you were you were born and raised in New Jersey, which you know clearly is like half an hour outside of Philly, and that's why I mean I presume most people are just like, oh yeah, you were like born and raised in Philly, and it's like, well, no, not actually. <laughs> um, what was uh, kind of the makeup of your household, like mom and dad in there, brothers and sisters? Yeah, so I had an, uh, I have an older brother and older sister, so I'm the baby. Um, uh, and my parents and uh, grew up with both my parents. So my parents uh, came to America from India in like the mid to late seventies, and uh, they settled in New Jersey. And um, they had my brother in like seventy nine, and then my sister in eighty one, and then I came along in uh, eighty six. So um, basically, born and raised, grew up in New Jersey. Um, we moved like maybe twice, but we have always been in uh, South Jersey and. It's interesting. People are like, what does hate five, six mean? Like, why do you hate the number five and six? It's five, five and six. It's like, no, well, my, uh, when I was growing up, my area code in South Jersey was 609. And I remember, uh, in high school, they changed it to eight, five, six. And I was like, fuck this. Like they're taking away my area code. This is my whole identity. So, uh, eight, five, six is basically a play on, uh, the, uh, the area code where I grew up, which is eight, five, six. Right. Exactly. Um, you, you were told by the government that this needs to change and it's just like, but I don't want yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but no, I know I had a I had a very um good life growing up. My my parents took care of us and you know they had a strong emphasis on education and you know succeeding in the things that we want to do. Um not super strict. I never really got punished. I mean, I was definitely a troublemaker, which uh I think does uh show itself in certain ways now that I now that I run Hate Fast 6 as a very public figure. Um the way I deal with certain people, I, I tend to troll them and I think that's um, that comes from how I grew up as just like a prankster. But, um, my parents were always very encouraging. They encouraged me to, they never got mad about me, like taking apart old computers and breaking things and trying to rebuild it. So, um, you know, and I was telling my dad recently, I, I, I was, I told him that one of the most, de- two of the most definitive moments in my life were one, when he bought us our first, uh, computer back in like 94, 95, um, the other moment was when he bought me a book on HTML and had to write code for like websites. So, um, a lot of those experiences that I had growing up, uh, were really formative to me. And I think that looking back now as like a 32 year old, I really, uh, appreciate a lot of those at the time, seemingly small gestures, but they really, uh, helped mold me. And like my, my brother got me into metal, um, back in like late nineties, he was a big rage against the machine fan in like the uh, mid nineties. And so that's how I, you know, fell into that fucking mess, um, and still haven't escaped from it. So, um, 
a lot of my, um, I would say, yeah, it's, it's funny. Um, looking back, I feel like I haven't changed much. I feel like, uh, I sort of found who I was and who I wanted to be pretty early on in life. And, um, I've only just refined that over the years. I haven't really deviated too much. No, that's cool. I mean, I think a lot of people that do, you know, have the, the fortune of kind of, you know, tripping across whether it's like, Oh, this is something I'm really passionate about. Like you said, you know, technology and computers and stuff like that. And then finding a community in music and like putting all those together, uh, you know, that because both of those things, you know, are usually, uh, indicated for, uh, you know, older people, whether it's like, you know, technology, like, oh yeah, you can know how to use computers and stuff. But like, you know, most people aren't taking apart, you know, their calculators and their computers at an early age. And then same thing, like going to shows, you're going to shows with older people mostly, or you're surrounded by older people. And so like most high schoolers, you know, don't have that experience of being surrounded by older people. Right. Hey, this past month, you've probably heard a ton about privacy policies. Have you ever heard about a company being proud of their privacy policy? WeTransfer absolutely is. They're all about making file sharing easier for everyone. And that includes being sure you don't need to worry about your privacy. So they don't sell user data. They don't snoop or spy on files. And they don't want to know your shoe size, soft drink preference, or shopping history. WeTransfer serves ads to keep their services free, but never in that creepy, I was just talking about that thing, and then all of a sudden it shows up on the internet, and that's terrible. In fact, they reserve 30% of their ad space to showcase the work of artists from around the world. It's their way of making the internet a nicer, simpler, more beautiful place. Start sending files and see what they stand for at we.tl slash not creepy. So we.tl slash not creepy, all one word. Not creepy for those of you that need a little help spelling, N-O-T-C-R. E-E-P-Y. So W-E.T-L slash not creepy. You make we transfer. This place is incredible. Okay? We transfer. Send all their files that way. All right. Now, the rest of the show. This is gonna be, you know, grossly uh stereotyping things, but like, you know, clearly there's always the joke of uh, you know, Indian people having, you know, tech support and like all, all of that. Like, did your did your family exist in the technology industry at all? Or is that something that just was kind of, you know, part and parcel uh, of your father seeing that you're interested in that? Yeah, no. So my dad um, is a mechanical, no, civil engineer. Oh, okay. um, and then he also does like real estate stuff. So uh, he's not very tech savvy. I'm always helping him with stuff. But, you know, he uh, he cultivated my love for math and was always helping me out with like calculus and high school and stuff like that. Um, and my mom, uh, would stay at home, but she also helped, um, she helped run the, you know, the family real estate property management stuff. Um, my mom is also, uh, she went to school for, uh, for fine art. So that's not something she's been doing much in recent years, but, or, you know, that's not, that's something she sort of, she sort of like gave up for a while, but in recent years I bought her like a tablet. So now she's like drawing stuff on a tat, like on her, on her, on her small, uh, tablet thing. And it's, she's. It, she's like falling in love again with creating art. And I think that, um, uh, to some degree, I feel like a lot of my creative, um, drive probably comes from her deep down. Um, that's cool that you can, yeah. that you can, you can recognize that and see how that, you know, that influence can play on your, on yourself. And then I, I like the, <laughs> the idea that, you know, passions, like once a person is cultivated in some capacity and they leave it, it doesn't mean that they can't come back to it because it's like, all, it's, it's almost like riding a bike. You know, if like you didn't film for yeah. 10 years, granted technology changes pretty quickly. So you'd have to, 
you know, adapt to the new cameras in 10 years or whatever. But, you know, you'd be able to like dive back in and be like, oh, okay, I see how this goes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like you mentioned, your, your gateway band was, you know, Rage Against the Machine. And I like, you know, in other interviews you've done where you, you make the lineage of, you know, Rage into finding out like, oh, Zach had another band before Rage called Inside Out. Like, I love... I love that, like that experience of when you get obsessed with a band, how you have to find every piece of information you can about every member and like what they've done previously and where they come from. Um, and then, and then once you do find out, they're like, Oh, there's, there's other music. And then it just cracks your head open. And I'm sure that was your experience with inside out. Yeah. It was like, I found inside out. I was like, Whoa, what is this? And then I remember, uh, I was in, I was really late in the- 90s, I was really into, and also into the early 2000s, I was into uh, collecting VHS tapes of bands. So obviously this is before internet video. Uh, so I remember I got a VHS tape with some, uh, it was a 93 Inside Out reunion, and there was like a Gorilla Biscuit set on there, and Youth of Today, and I was like, whoa, what is this shit? I had no idea, like this is what, what, this, what this stuff was. Um, and then also, you know, from tracing Inside Out, I, I came across 108 and stuff like that, so that was like, I know a lot of people come into hardcore from like punk. And like, I mean, when I was in high school, um, a lot of my friends were starting punk bands. So I had some sort of familiarity with that, but it was through rage that I found inside out and one away. And then again, like finding gorilla biscuits on that tape that I was just like, Whoa, this is, this is what I, this is for me. This stuff is what I'm all about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I, so, and my brother took me to, uh, Ozfest 2001 and, uh, hate breed played on the, on the, like the, uh, the side stage. And so, uh, uh, that was like the first, I mean, I had gone to like a couple punk shows, uh, here and there, but like, that was the first like real big hardcore band that I saw. And I was like, that, that blew my mind. Um, right. And then I was like a big fan. Um, I, I find it interesting the, uh, you know, like getting into 108 and, you know, inside out, like, you know, th- those are both, you know, very spiritually, uh, connected bands, you know, whether or not, I mean, inside out, you know, was speaking more so from the, you know, the, the soul searching aspect of it, you know, 108 was too. And that's kind of hard initially as a kid to kind of wrap your head around, especially when you're, you know, trying to crack open Krishna consciousness and everything like that. What, what kind of, you know, were you attracted to those messages and like that, that kind of soul searching, uh, ecosystem of both of those bands? Yeah. I, so in general, I tend to be really attracted to just introspective lyrics. So, um, like damnation unbroken, those are bands that are very self-reflective. Um, and I felt like inside out was very similar. I mean, there's only so much I can take about breaking chains and getting stabbed in the back. Um, <laughs> yep. you know, and there's, you know, there's a common, th- there's certain themes that reoccur in hardcore. Um, but I, I just felt like something about inside out, um, just clicked with me in terms of, you know, not just the lyrics, but also how they were being delivered. And they're just, they're, they're just seemed, uh, like a very sincere, um, emotion behind it. And I think that's what was really, that really appealed to me. And then, you know, with one away, it's interesting, like, so my parents are Hindu, um, but I'm not a religious person. So I've always been sort of conflicted with that because the, the Indian culture is very sort of tied to uh, Hinduism. So I felt like, you know, growing up, I was pushing away the religion. And as a result, I was pu- pushing away the sort of my cultural uh, and like ancestry that was that was tied to it. So I definitely went through a phase where I was dealing with like an identity crisis and, and I still struggle with it. There are times when I'm just like, oh, I'm not I'm too American to be Indian, but I'm also not Indian enough to be Indian. Like I, I feel like I exist in two worlds at all times. 
And it's, it's a very difficult thing to navigate at times. But, um, it's funny, like when I found 108, I was like, oh, this like makes sense because they're lyrically, they're, they're talking about things that are at least somewhat related to my ancestry, you know, even though I'm not a devotee, but like some, some of the, like the, the, the themes and the messages are, are deeply rooted in, in Hinduism and Indian culture. Um, and you know, they were coming at it from a hardcore perspective, which is what I was already in love with. So they were providing me, uh, a way to interact with a part of myself that I was not up until then able to sort of confront or face. Um, and what's funny, it's like, they're, they're all like white people. They're not, they're not Indian people, you know, and that's no knock on them. I love one away and I love everyone in the band, but it's like, damn, it took like some white people who became Christian devotees for me to feel comfortable with being Indian. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's sort of why I was really drawn to it. It's, it was, you know, one, I fucking love the music, but two, it's, even though I'm not a devotee, they help sort of answer some, um, very deep questions that I had about myself and my identity. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you laying that out because I think that's, uh, like when you start to, you know, butt up against, uh, tradition, religion, and you have to start, you know, figuring out what it is that you actually believe. And, you know, when you're viewing it through the prism of, you know, your, like you were saying, your, your culture, the way you were raised and how every member of your family is. And then you're like, well, I don't know if I feel that. And then you have, you know, a band or, or, you know, someone else that you trust kind of painting a picture for you. It's kind of like, oh yeah, like that, that's what I feel more than just like having to do this because my family tells me to do it. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that's really cool. Um, you also, I, I'm just kind of making a, a sweeping assumption of you, but like you, you, the way that you've always struck me, just, you know, kind of observing you as a person and the way that you are, um, you know, that you exist on the internet <laughs> is, uh, that you seem like a, you know, an, an outgoing guy. Like you definitely aren't a, uh, a wallflower from that perspective. Uh, and then, you know, you kind of indicating earlier that you were a, a prankster and you like to, uh, you know, be cause mischief. Um, how did that manifest itself? Like, you know, were you, uh, you know, like doing, you know, putting cherry bombs in mailboxes and stuff like that? Or what were you, uh, what were you, do- what were you into? Well, it's funny. I, I actually feel like I'm pretty introverted. I mean, I have a very, very big online presence and if I'm at like a big show, like I'll talk to people, but I tend to just like keep to my, so if I'm not, I, you know, I, I spend a lot of time by myself, uh, you know, editing videos or, you know, you know, I, I tend to be a very private person in certain ways. Um, and maybe I'm just getting burned out on a lot of social interaction. And I, I this is just my time, you know, I, you know, you need time by yourself to just like recharge, but I feel like, uh, in certain ways I'm very outgoing and in other ways I'm very like private and, uh, you know, I tend to do, I, I tend to prefer doing things by myself. And I, again, I don't, I don't know if that's a product of just getting burned out on, um, having this big like public presence or if that's just like naturally who I am. But like as a kid, you know, I was, um, I'm trying to think of like funny pranks. I mean, I was always doing like, um, like prank calls and like, uh, uh, what was it called? Like, a uh, ding dong ditch. I think, I think, I think the regionally it's a different name. I don't know what it places. No. What, what yeah. Other ding, people call it. Yeah. Ding, ding dong ditch is yeah. I think that's the most universally yeah, <laughs> accepted yeah. term. So doing something like that, um, you know, we would, uh, when the ice cream, ice cream truck would come by in the neighborhood, you know, they would sell those, um, 
there's little, they're not explosives. They're like little silver packets full of like baking soda and vinegar that if you pop them, they'll like, they'll expand and like blow up. You know what I'm talking about? Totally. Totally. yeah, so we would buy them from the from the ice cream truck, and then like he would hand it to us, and we we would detonate them and like throw them back into the truck and then run away. <laughs> Dude, I, <laughs> that's incredible. I like that. I've never. Yeah, so we would we would do terrible things like that. Um, <laughs> and so I mean, and so as I became more tech savvy, my pranks became more involved. Like I remember being in college, and then there was my friend of mine who lived a fairly sheltered life growing up. She had never heard of uh, Jay Leno or CNN or any sort of cultural reference. She had no um, bearing. Like you, you could not come up with any sort of cultural uh, point that she could actually refer to and understand. And I was, and I think it's because she grew up in a house where they didn't have like cable TV um, and things like that. So I remember. I made a, I made a spoof website that looked like CNN and I posted a ridiculous article and, uh, I remember she came to me and so she was like, so let me back up. So the, the, uh, at my college, there was a, um, there was basically a fundraiser. So people were, this is during like the Darfur genocide. So there was a fundraiser on campus where people were, they had, they set up an event called hookah for Darfur, Darfur. So basically people would come and smoke a hookah. And the money was being raised to somehow end the genocide in Darfur or you know, be donated to some like humanitarian aid there. And I was just like, man, this sound, this is just so silly. There was something about the idea of just like sitting around and smoking a hookah. That being helpful. And, right. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, in, in retrospect, like, they raised money and like there's value in that. But I was just like, man, like you couldn't do anything else. And I was just so like, I was just so upset about it. I was like, this is so fucking ridiculous. So I, I made a fake CNN website and the headline was uh, college students end the genocide by smoking a hookah. And this is like pre onion, pre anything like that. And I, I showed it to my friend, who, you know, like I said, who had no understanding of anything. And she was like, Oh my God, I can't believe that happened. And, and she's like, it's, 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 they, 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 they solved it. Like, and I was like, it's over on CNN. And then she was like, well, but wait, what's, what's CNN? And why did they let you write an article for them? And I'm like, Oh my God, this is, <laughs> dude, that, that is, that, that's a, that's an involved, like, are, uh, I apologize for me not knowing this. Like, are, are you straight edge? I am. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And like, were you straight edge at the time? With that, yeah. Point. Okay, so I can. E- <laughs> the only reason I asked that is because I I put myself in your shoes, and I definitely would have done the same thing of just like, dude, what is this hookah madness? Like, there's no way that that's like actually you know causing a benefit or whatever. But that, anyways. yeah, and, yeah. And I was definitely like a militant asshole about being vegan straight back then. So I was, I was constantly antagonizing people, and I'm I'm definitely not that person anymore. But right. I would, you know, we had, we had online message boards at the, at the, at the college and I would just troll the fuck out of people on there, uh, <laughs> yeah. like smoking or whatever it was. And like, people did not like me for it. Sure. Um, and I think like, I'm still pranking people today. Like, so, you know, you know, for this is hardcore, we haven't done it in a while, but we would make a lot of like, uh, promotional movies that were just a bunch of just like jokes. And, you know, we had one movie a couple years ago, you know, these movies were basically, we, we would write a script and they would have some sort of like plot and then they would also have hints to the lineup and at the end um you know so basically if you watched it you would and if you were astute enough you would pick up on the hints of what the lineup would be so remember a couple years ago we we premiered one of our films and we promised people we're like oh it's gonna be a black tie event so you have to dress up in a suit and tie or a fancy dress 
Um, there's going to be admission. We're going to donate the money. And at the end, we're going to reveal the lineup. So people came out with like, we rented this, like, um, this upstairs space at this, uh, church that had really nice seating and really nice, just like tapestries and things like that. And we, we, we played the movie on like a big screen and people were like, you know, decked out in their finest attire. And so at the end, people were like, you know, so the movie ends and typically what I, what I like to do at the end of these movies is I, I'm about, I'm a, I, I show something on the screen that's about to reveal the lineup. And then I cut to a, uh, a clip of Admiral Akbar from star Wars. And he just says, you know, it's a trap. Um, and the thing is like, people never got, people caught onto it, but they would still fucking fall for it. So people came out to this thing thinking they were going to see the lineup. And at the end, I pull my fucking Akbar, Akbar shit. And people are like, wait, we're not getting the lineup. And we're like, Nope, we're not telling you what the lineup is. You got to wait another week. So uh, that's I'm surprised. Yeah, and I'm surprised I never got beat up for that one. But um, <laughs> yeah, well, that's that, yeah, yeah, that's the kind of that. That's the. But I really like that that balance of you're, you're talking about, where it's just like the you know the introverted nature of the work that you get involved in. You know that, and, and that you know that goes across many different disciplines. Whether it's you know, I mean, this medium in and of itself, podcasting. Like, yes, we are talking and we are connecting as human beings, but. You know, like I'm going to go back and edit this and do this myself in, in a room by myself. And you're going to edit videos by yourself in a room. And most of the work that people do from that perspective is is solitary. But then you want to, you know, you express yourself in these other ways that are very extroverted. And like you said, just, you know, trolling and just causing, um, you know, mischief and, and mayhem and blowing people's minds and bumming people out. Because that is an expression of, uh, you know, a extrovert of like, well, yeah, this feels, this feels fun and good. Right. Yeah. And I, I'm sort of, as of recently trying to use the, use trolling as a way to, uh, I don't know, in in a a more positive way. So like, uh, recently I've been getting a lot of hate messages, um, from people who don't like the hate five, six logo, or they don't like, uh, that I'm very, I don't, I don't hide who I am. I don't hide my politics. I don't hide my face. Like, so there are a lot of people who feel threatened by my presence. Um, and like a couple of weeks ago, I posted this uh, speech that Pulling Teeth gave at This Is Hardcore, uh, where Mike Riley from Pulling Teeth, you know, he, he uh, gave a speech about how trans people are not a burden and gave a speech about how uh, black and brown people belong here and that anyone um, who questions that should be challenged. And, you know, with with um, uh, with force, not physical force, but like with, a, you know, people should be aggressively confronting people who are saying transphobic or racist things. So, um, I posted that video and it went viral and I was getting a lot of people like, like on my personal pages, just saying like, go back to India or just saying, just saying really hateful things and, you know, doubling down on transphobic comments. And so I use trolling as a way to expose them and also just to, you know, rile them up. So what I, what I typically do, if someone is just spewing hate either towards me or towards a band, uh, typically people who, uh, you know, I'll film, if I film a band that has a woman or uh, a trans person or a person of color, those videos tend to get a lot of negative responses from maybe not people in hardcore, but people who stumble upon the video are more inclined to leave negative comments on that. So typically what I do is I just ask them, hey, are you all right? Like, what's going on? And it's sort of like a de-escalation technique because a troll is expecting you to just fight fire with fire. So these people are leaving negative comments because they're expecting you to be like, well, fuck you, man. Like, why are you, why are you hating on this? This is my friend. Like, fuck you. Like, I want to see what band that you're in. But what I try to do is I just be like, Jesus, you're really upset. Like, are you okay? And they're, they're taken aback by that because they're not expecting, they're not expecting that response. And what they end up doing is 
they're just like, yeah, I'm okay. I'm just this this person shouldn't be in a band because they fucking suck. And I just I basically keep de-escalating the situation and allow them to just get more and more riled up about it. And they don't realize that I'm making fun of them. Right. And then other people and then other people like chime in and they're just like they start making fun of them too in the same way. And it just it just really just makes a mockery of what they're trying to say. Um and so I'm using that. And again, like someone asked me, like, how do you do it? Like, you know. I would be so upset just seeing all those comments. And like I told him, it's like, I, I emotionally detach from what these people are saying. Cause at the end of the day, it's like what they're saying, like they have a right to say they, everyone has a right to their opinion. Um, but I'm not going to let you, I'm not going to just, I'm not going to let certain things go unchallenged basically. Um, and so what happened with that, with that polling team video was a lot of like these Trump supporters were resharing the video and adding their own, um, you know, commentary on it saying like, Oh, fuck this speech and fuck this dude. Like, you know, this PC social, just social justice warrior culture has to stop. But what they fail to realize is like, like, that's cool. That That's your opinion. That's cool. Like, I don't fucking care for your opinion, but what you're at the end of the day is you're sharing that video, which is, which is spreading this speech, which is spreading this message message that needs to be heard. So the way I look at it is like, these people are, all, are only doing my bidding. You know, they're, they're spreading this message that I think needs to be put out there. So at the end of the day, like, I'm not going to get mad. Um, there's only so much getting mad about these people is going to do. Um, and so I'm trying to think about it from the positive perspective, which is they're sharing these videos on their platforms, which is reaching people who it's reaching the people who need to hear this message because in hardcore and punk, a lot of it is just preaching to the choir. Mm-hmm. And I think that these messages need to reach the people who are not in this within these four walls. Totally. Well, and just the notion that it's like, Hey, this broken up hardcore band that, you know, relatively speaking was, was pretty small, like is now being shared amongst people who have like never heard hardcore, like have never, have no experience with the independent music scene are just like, what is this stupid band saying? (laughs) It's so great. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you. And it might not change every opinion, but if it can change one person, then that's that's enough. Because yeah. that one person can then pay it forward. So whenever anyone's like, oh, you're a failed experiment, or or anyone's like, oh, Rage Against the Machine was a failed experiment, it's like, no. Like, look at me. I've I've taken what I, I took from that band and I've I've applied I've paid it forward. And I think that like trying to quantify success in terms of large scale change isn't always the right way. I think, you know, if if collectively, if we make small incremental changes that can add up to a, a much bigger movement. So, um, that's sort of what I keep in mind. It's like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to end world hunger today. I'm not going to end the Trump administration, but you know, if I can put something out there, that's going to change one person's mind, then that's a success. Exactly. It's just collecting one by one. That's that, that's all anything that is ever worth <laughs> socially, culturally speaking is, you know, you're collecting one person at a time and that you never know how that's going to influence, like you said, others. And so, yeah, I, I, I agree with your mission, my friend. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you, did you, did you ever play in a band? I did not. I mean, I played in, um, a middle school, um, I played, uh, the saxophones. So I played in like the marching band, uh, but I wasn't that good at it. So I did that for like two or three years and then I stopped. Um, I tried picking up a guitar, um, I learned a couple chords, but I was just like, I don't have time to do this. Um, I would really like to learn how to play it one day, but I just don't have the time right now. Um, I've done like guest vocals at certain like live during like certain live sets, but I've never been, I've never like sung for a band, but it's funny. People are always like, yo, you need to front a band. Like I've seen you do that, like, that inside out cover song and like you have the presence to do it. But I'm like in my head, I'm like, yeah, that'd be really cool. But I'm also just like, I don't know how to write lyrics. Like, I don't, I don't know how to do it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I really don't. 
Uh, I don't know how certain people do it. And I'm trying to picture like, wow, could I write a song like that's that's lyrically um, as um, forceful as some of my favorite songs? And I just have a hard time picturing myself doing that. Well, well, Sonny, just to relieve the pressure from you, my friend, you uh, you don't have to, uh, you know, you don't have to write No Spiritual Surrender as your first song, you know, like even though <laughs> even though they, they accidentally did that, um, you don't have to yeah. put that pressure on yourself. Right. That's true. <laughs> hey, pardon the interruption, but I have an important announcement for you. We got a rad new sponsor, Nutrafol. What is it? It is a new safe and effective strategy to help you take control of your hair health. It's made with 100% drug-free nutraceutical ingredient that are clinically shown to improve thinning hair. It's recommended by over 850 top physicians in some of the top salons in the country. So, it's not just genetics that have it out for your hair. Stress, DHT levels, diet, environment, toxins, all of that has been discovered to compromise your hair health. Whatever the cause is, you're catching your reflection in the mirror and you're like, oh, I don't know, it's thinning a little bit up there. Real talk, that's I've seen that myself and my stepfather, a lot of, a lot of men in the family. Maybe you've tried the drugs in the market. Maybe you've interested in something that's not 100% drug-free. Leveraging the latest, greatest in biotechnology, Nutrafol's botanical ingredients are shown to improve hair without compromising sexual health or any other kind. In fact, one of Nutrafol's key ingredients, saw palmetto, you've probably heard of that before, it's been shown to support a healthier libido. So my stepfather has been using Nutrafol for quite some time, and I was excited when they came to me to want to sponsor the show because uh he loves this stuff it's a a a great way he is uh he's basically uh you know just contributing to his hair health and that is an awesome thing he loves it takes it he's been doing it for i want to say about four or five months now it's awesome so to get your first month supply with a subscription for over ten dollars over how about for ten dollars exactly visit nutrifol.com and you spell that n-u-t- R-A-F-O-L.com and use the promo code WORDS during checkout. That's Nutrafol.com, N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com. Offer code WORDS to get your first month's supply for $10 with a subscription. Do it up. You got nothing to lose. Make your hair healthy. Nutrafol. Now on with the show. I guess what was the the path as you were, you know, going through school and, you know, like from a career perspective, like, you know, cause you, you, you weren't bitten by the bug of like, Oh, I'm going to drop out of school and like tour and all that sort of stuff. Um, what, how did, how did that kind of manifest itself? what did you have a vision for? Well, with, uh, how I started hate by six or what? Or just, I mean, just, yeah. Like how, how basically you're like, what am I going to do after I graduate high school? Am I going to go to college? What am I going to work um, this yeah. career stuff? Like, what are you going to do? Right. Well, yeah. So like I said, my parents um, cultivated the the sort of uh, importance on education. So I, I, I knew that hesitation that I would go to college. So that was like without a question. Um, I was definitely interested in like science and things like that. So I, was, I knew I was leaning towards something in that direction. But uh, when I got to college, I really fell in love with um, abstract math and um, computer science. So I knew pretty early on once once uh, coming to college what I wanted to do professionally. Um, and so in the back of my head, I was always like, okay, I'll either go to grad school for like a PhD in math or I'll do, be like a software developer or something like that. So, um, that, that's pretty much the path that I took. Um, I ended up getting rejected from every PhD program I applied to. So I, I worked for a little bit as a software developer. Um, then I went to grad school. I, I quit that. I went to grad school for computer science. 
um, and sort of uh, figured out even more specifically what area of computer science that I really liked. Uh, so after grad school, which I graduated in 2011, um, I had a much better sense of what area I wanted to go into. And so like 2000, I officially launched Hate Five Six in 2008. Um, it was right after I finished college and I was like, in, I was basically trying to find my first job. And so while I was like sending resumes out and interviewing, I was like, let me just build a website. You know, I had stuff on, I had my stuff posted on YouTube, but I was like, let me just build like a central uh, uh, location and database that people can come to. So that was like, it started out as an, as a project just for me to keep myself busy and then also to use as like, you know, when I need to make, um, when I need to uh, refer to something on my resume that, you know, here's something that I built, I can point to it. So, um, ever since that point, hate five, six has always been, um, just something that I've done on the side, just like a work in progress. I've, I've built new tools for it. I've done a lot. I mean, there's like thousands of lines of code that go behind the scenes that run the site. And so, um, whenever I'm interviewing for a job, I can refer to it, be like, Oh, you know, I built this, um, uh, adaptive scheduling system that re-ranks what videos get released every day based off of what the public demand is. So, um, a lot of what Hey Five Six has been has been just like a playground for me to um, either learn a new piece of technology or you know learn a new software language or what have you. And those are those are skills that I then incorporate into my my nine to five. Um, and so after you know grad school, I, I worked in tech for a couple of years and hate five six is always this, this thing on the side. And very recently it just got to the point where it's like, I really think I want to try doing hate five six full time. Um, because juggling and people don't realize that like people, a lot of people think that hate five six is my full time job. And, and I think it's because I've found a way to juggle, um, a nine to five and also, uh, be able to produce as much content as, as I do. So, um, it got to the point recently where it's just like, I can't keep, I, mean, I can, I can keep doing it. I'm just not going to be happy. And I think what I need to do for my happiness and, uh, to try to push what I've done to the next level is to take the plunge and try doing it full time. So, um, for me, again, I, I feel like one of the themes of my life is, uh, straddling multiple worlds, whether it's like, Oh, am I Indian enough or am I American enough? And it's also been like, wow, I like doing video, but I also like doing tech. And I, I'm sort of living this double life where I'm, at my nine to five job, I don't talk about what I do at eight by six, eight by six. And then when I'm doing eight by six, I don't really talk about, you know, the stuff I do from nine to five, but maybe it makes sense for, to maybe it makes the most sense for me to, to, to combine these things. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think too, like the, the experience of people that hat that you know do stuff that is of a you know larger public context outside of whatever work they're doing from you know like you said a nine to five perspective like you know most people don't do that <laughs> you know most people like work yeah. and then they're like you know they have their hobbies and like you know that's cool and they spend time you know golfing dancing whatever it is you know that that normal people do um and but like pe- people are so taken aback when it's like, you know, people like you know yourself or myself that like have all of these other things going on and they're just like what it's like that 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 act in and of itself is really uh influential to a lot of people who are just kind of like oh like you know that don't have the luxury of being exposed to this uh you know this awesome music scene that we've tripped across right right so yeah basically just do do your stuff more sunny okay <laughs> yeah and that's the thing like i i've been hearing from a lot of people saying like well this the fact that you were able to juggle this stuff inspires me to uh follow my own passion so i i that's a cool thing to hear from people that they're seeing that I am trying to make this work for myself and that's inspiring them to, uh, explore whether they can break from this, 
this monotony of, you know, you have to work a nine to five and then you, you can only spend a couple hours a night on your, on your hobbies. It's like, no, there, there, there is a life outside of that. And, uh, if I can, uh, if I can sort of provide an example for people to, uh, push themselves and do what they love, then again, that's another win for me. That's another win for like doing what I do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just a few, a few other things before I let you go was the, uh, you, you know, I know you've been, uh, public in the fact that certain bands, uh, you know, what are painted black and other bands have been like, no, you know, like, don't film me. I'm, you know, have philosophical opposition to it. Um, and like, I, I try to, uh, like, I always try to understand where people are coming from. Like if, you know, something that doesn't make sense in my head, I'm always just like, why? I don't, I don't really get why a person like, you know, thinks this way or whatever. Um, does that still kind of like confound you when bands like, you know, you'll respect them and you won't do it eventually. Um, but like, does that, does that idea still kind of sit weird in your head of like, why would, why would a band like ultimately not want to be filmed? Yeah, no, I've mellowed out about it. Um, I'm at a point now where it's like, well, if a band really doesn't want me to film, I'd rather spend that time filming a band that would appreciate it. Um, but so for a while I was just like, well, what the fuck? Like no one owns these moments and I should be able to document my experience and I should be free to share that. But, um, I, I, now that sort of hit five, six is growing. I understand, you know, if a band plays a, a terrible set, they'll sometimes be like, Hey, can you not post that? And part of me is like, well, fuck, like, I'm not here to curate your image. You know, I'm not trying to only post your good sets. I think it's important to show like, you know, sometimes bands play a a terrible set, but that's only motivation to play a better set the next time. And also again, creates a context. So with it, so when they do play a better set, it actually resonates more. I feel like, I mean, I talked to like, um, rich, um, from killing time. And he was like, someone asked him, he's like, yo, don't, don't you get upset when, when Sonny posts like, uh, you know, uh, a mediocre killing time set. He's like, no, like this is punk rock. Like we're supposed to, it's not supposed to, it's not meant to be cookie cutter and perfect and, you know, whitewashed of imperfections. Like it's meant to be dirty and like fucked up, you know? And he was also like, you know, it just makes it uh, better when we do play a good set. Cause it makes the, it makes that better set stand out a lot more. So, um, I appreciate that perspective cause it resonates more with how I like to think about, uh, documenting this music. But at the same time, I get it. A band doesn't want a certain video up. And at the, at this point, like I have plenty of things to work on that. I'm not going to, uh, freak out about it. But early on, I was just like, what the fuck? Like I want to, I film this thing. I want to post it. Um, but I think that in recent years, I'm just like, whatever, it's really up to the artist at this point. Um, sure, sure. But you're like, yeah, but I still don't understand why, why, why you don't want that, but I'll, I'll respect it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, the something that I was kind of talking about a little bit earlier, but the, you know, the idea that communities in the same way that, you know, like you were mentioning earlier, the, the sort of VHS tape trading that existed where, you know, people would compile these, these tapes of like, Oh, here's all these great sets that, you know, you'll never get to see. Um, but then a community, you know, has kind of sprung up around the idea of, you know, uh, of not only hate five, six, but the, the documentation of these sets and everything like that. But, to me, the the sort of distinct step that you took forward is like actually branding it, like coming up with a logo and like having this sort of um, your personality uh, broadcast to the world. Was that, um, you know, I, I'm sure when you were doing it initially, like you said, it was, you know, you, you have uh, tempered expectations. You're not like, all right, well, I'm going to take over the world by doing this. But, you know, how have you navigated kind of that, you know, that public uh, uh, 
persona. Well, not like, like you're a different person in public, but putting yourself out there to where people can, you know, criticize and, and be dicks when, you know, that, that kind of hurts because at the end of the day, all you're doing is, you know, filming bands and you're trying to contribute something positive. So how have you navigated that? Yeah. Well, I think that a lot of, um, content creators are stuck behind the lens and it's, it's easy to not realize that there's a person behind it. So like when, when Chris passed away, I was like, I was upset for a lot of reasons. And part of me was just like, I really hope people realize that there was a person behind that camera. And it's not just someone who was posting YouTube videos of sound and fury and, and all these amazing shows in California. But like there was a person there who sacrificed so much to give people uh, what he gave. Um, and so I think that like my decision to brand hate five, six was to just one, like put my little, you know, my little flagging in the flag in the ground and say like, this is who I am. I'm a person behind this. I'm not just a, you know, anonymous videographer. Like this is who I am. And like, you know, there is a person behind this. And the other motivation was like, there's not many people who look like me in hardcore punk. And so for me, it was just, it was, uh, you know, maybe it's like an egotistical thing, but it's also just like, yo, I'm a brown person and I'm contributing something to hardcore. And I want you to know that, you know, this is who I am and I'm not going to, I'm not going to hide it. And so for me, it was, uh, wanting to reaffirm my own visibility within this community. Um, and, uh, sort of to, to tell myself like, yes, I am in the minority, but I don't have to be, uh, I don't have to be confined to that sort of title. I can actually be uh, a presence that provides something that people find useful. And, um, that's again, that's sort of, again, stick, you know, putting my little flag in the ground and saying like, this is who I am. This is my identity. And you have to, you know, if you, if my presence is a threat to you, then you got to fucking deal with it. I'm not going to budge, you know? Um, and it's like, I've been hearing from people, um, more and more saying like, Hey, I'm like a Brown guy. I, in my own, my own home scene and there's no one else who looks like me. But when I see, you know, your presence behind hate by six, it gives, it makes me feel more comfortable to come out to shows. So, um, for me, um, that's, that's the best thing that I could possibly hear from someone that, uh, my sort of decision to be fearless with putting myself out there is making other people feel more comfortable being who they are in their own, uh, in their own communities. Sure. No, I really like that. Uh, well, it's not a notion. I really like that idea just because it's, you know, you are, uh, you know, representing not only yourself, but, you know, the the majority of the minority that is, you know, the hardcore scene, which is just a microcosm of, you know, different cities and, um, you know, the nation as a whole. And so it's it's always good to, you know, clearly have different voices that will be able to share the ways that people can contribute, you know, cause I think so many people when they start to experience, you know, punk and hardcore and then like want to get involved, but like, you know, don't play guitar or whatever. Like they, a lot of people are just, I don't know, like, I mean, I guess I'll try to take pictures or whatever. And so like when you have all these options out there, it's, it not only is it powerful for the community as a whole, but then, you know, more specifically people that aren't, you know, straight white dudes that are going to shows, you know? Right. Yeah, it's really cool that that it's just cool that you've you've had that positive feedback too because sometimes, you know, you don't you don't hear that from people. Yeah, I mean again, that's not something I expected, but um again, it's uh even though I am exposing myself to a lot of hate from people, um I think that is uh it's it's worth it's worth it and if if I know that it's uh it's making people feel like they have a presence, they have like a space and they have a they have uh um 
a presence in in their own scene. And I think that like me taking a couple, you know, negative messages from people here and there is, is that's it's worth it. Yeah, totally. You could just troll them. You know how to handle it now. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a master troll. I know how to deal with it. <laughs> totally. You're just like, hey, call, calm down. I really like the, the are you okay? Like people are just yeah, like, yeah, no. what, what's this? Like, you're not supposed to show me compassion. And it's like, yeah, the, the moment you show that to a person, they immediately are just like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have been a dick. Like they, whether they express that publicly or not, it's always in someone's head when that happens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, it, something that I, uh, you know, I, I've always kind of uh, grappled with in regards to the differences between, you know, the East Coast and the West Coast. Um, and I'm not asking you to speak representatively, representatively of the entire, uh, you know, Philadelphia hardcore scene. But like, you know, there there is a notion that, you know, Philadelphia is you know pretty violent. Um, and I, I remember when Taken was on tour with this day forward, we played the Rotunda. And it was like one of the first times where I've like, you know, been on the side of the pit and like been punched in the face, like, you know, by someone just moshing. But I was like, oh, like the, you know, the West Coast has violent dancing i guess but it it just wasn't to the same level and it was the first time where i kind of noticed that difference um and you know since you've traveled around and you've witnessed uh, a bunch of different hardcore scenes um you know how to like i guess how does that kind of compare and contrast um you know for you as you see different scenes exist and um you know maybe you feel maybe you feel like philly's got a bad rap i don't know no i mean i think maybe i'm like slightly a nerd to it but um i mean philly is there are aggressive people here who mosh. I don't think it's as violent as it used to be. Um, there are people, you know, there are hard moshers, but I don't think that they are significantly harder than uh, other scenes that I've seen. And that's not a diss on Philly. They're like, oh, you're not hard enough. But it's like, I don't <laughs> yeah, think, yeah. I don't, I don't think people here are uh, actively targeting people in a way that um, other people like envision that they are. I, I, I think that probably like before I was really coming to shows, it was much more of that especially when, um, you know, certain, uh, people or certain groups were still around. I think, um, there was definitely a different attitude, but I don't know, as I travel, like, I feel like, um, I feel like I'm not seeing much variation in terms of mosh style or things like that. Um, maybe that's because, you know, people have, uh, people have said that like, Hey, five, six videos or videos in general of bands are really, um, uh, you know, people, you know, someone in, um, like an, a more isolated scene will watch a video and they'll like, they'll basically learn the mosh moves of whatever they're seeing in the video. So it's basically had more of like a globalizing effect. That's normalizing certain, um, dance moves or expectations for a show. Um, so in that sense, I don't, I don't see much, uh, variation anymore. I feel like when I go to a show, I know, I know what I'm going to expect to see. I'm going to see a couple people like crowd killing. I'm going to see a big fucking horseshoe. Um, and I'm not going to see a lot of people push up front. Um, again, that's coming from my relatively limited observations. I mean, I go to a lot of shows on the East coast. Uh, I'm, I'm only at the West coast, like maybe once or twice a year. Um, but judging from what I've seen, it just seems, um, there's a general, there's a uniform sense of what to expect at a show at this point, regardless of where I am. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I didn't really think about it in those terms of the, uh, the sort of, you know, democratization of, you know, a typical show behavior. Um, cause yeah, all you, yeah. you know, prior, like you said, prior to the fact that, you know, people had access to how things operated across, you know, different areas of the world. Yeah, you would just you, you'd hear anecdotal stories, you know. You'd be like, "Oh, dude, Syracuse is brutal," or whatever, and it's like, you know, that you're like, "Oh, right. okay, okay," and then you go there and you're just yeah. like, "Oh, yeah, it's kind of like a normal show." It's like, "Oh, yeah, maybe there's you know 
a, lar- a larger 300 pound dude moshing as opposed to like, you know, 180 pound dude. But like, there's not much difference there. Right. And again, like in like the early era of hardcore, like the eighties, there was always, you know, regional differences in, in style of dancing, you know, they had circle pits in one region, you had uh, push pits and other regions and like pogoing. And so I think that like, we're, we've certainly lost that. And again, uh, I don't think that's, I think that's just a product of, uh, how uh, we consume uh, our culture now. We, con- we consume it through video, we consume it through pictures and live streams, whatever it is. And I think that uh, um, that's no knock. That's not a knock on anyone. It's just, that's, that's just the nature of how uh, we uh, consume culture and consume media and, and shape our own um, representations of how these events should be, should be experienced. And like, you know, I was talking to um, someone in turnstile and he was like, like, um, He's noticed that, you know, pe- people go off to, to turn on in a very unique way. People are more inclined to like come up on stage and dance and like do things that you won't see during like a beatdown band. Um, and they've sort of noticed that the more they travel, they're seeing that sort of uh, style of response converge. So, you know, they'll play in another country and they'll um, again, so now that they've been around for a while, it's like it's expected what they're going to see. But early on, they were noticing that the more they played out and the more that certain videos were going viral, um, they were noticing a convergence of how the response was happening to their set. Um, so I think like when you have a new band that's doing something completely novel relative to other bands in the scene and like people are responding in a unique way, it's very interesting to see how that, um, response permeates out from, you know, whether permeates from, um, where they play a lot to other regions where they haven't played yet. But then once they start playing there, then, that sort of um, response and reaction um, assumes the like the the um, what's expected. Basically, the, the it, like I said, it converges on a, uh, a general type of response. So it's it's, it's expected what they're going to get. Sure. Yeah. It's like the law of averages. You know, it's like oh, okay. Like that's <laughs> that, that's kind of what's expected at this show. I see what's seeing. I yeah. see what's happening. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the the last thing I want to hit on was the um, you know I, I really like the fact that you, you know, you, you document bands, you know, from across all different spectrums of independent music. Cause you know, I, I, I mean, your, your tastes are clear. And like you said, you know, you will film bands that you don't particularly like, but you feel like it's important for one reason or another. Um, and I think that pushes up against the convention of a lot of people who are, uh, you know, more so when you're younger, your vision of music is very myopic. You're like, I am only listening to hardcore or whatever. Um, you know, do you, I presume that's a really important part of what it is that you do to, you know, not only expose people to new bands, like you were saying, but also kind of hopefully stretch people to maybe consider something like, you know, whatever random band, like senses fail. Most people would just be like, Oh, they put out a couple hardcore records and most people would not know that, you know? Yeah. And so like, I presume that's important to you. Yeah, no, for me, it's important to, you know, film across the board. Um, again, it's like, I have, a certain set of interests that I like, but, uh, I will film anything that I think is important to document, whether it's tangentially related to hardcore and punk, or if it's just something random, like I'll film. If you dig into the site, there are videos of hip hop artists and there are videos of like singer songwriters that have no connection to hardcore, but it's just like, Oh, this is a cool thing. And I want to film. I'm allowed to film it. I'm going to go do it. Um, so for me, it's like as much as it is a archive of hardcore and punk, it's also just like, no, I'm just, I'm just documenting my personal experience. And like, I like hip hop. So I'm going to go film this hip hop show. Like I don't, if, if no one watches it, if none of my typical hardcore fans watch it, like viewers watch it, then that's fine. But for me, it's like, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to at least watch it at some point again. So, um, 
And I think the other point is, um, I think it's one thing that's, that's disappearing right now in hardcore punk is the, um, the sort of mixed lineups at, at shows. I think we're moving away from, you know, going to a show and seeing like uh, a beatdown band and also seeing a band that has like not as heavy parts that has more sing along things and, the, and things like that. Um, and so for me, it gets monotonous when every band on a show is basically a derivative or they, they sound the same. And so again, going back to like that horseshoe discussion, which I, 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 this is one of the points that I tweeted about, um, was that like the lack of diversity it shows is sort of, it's preventing kids from getting a wider, uh, wider exposure to other types of music that's out there. So for me, it's like, I will film census fail or I'll film Thursday, you know, because I like those bands, but also to show people like, you know, not every band I mean, even though these bands, these bands aren't hardcore, but like there are bands that I've filmed that are more hardcore. Um, it's like the purpose of me filming them is to show that, yo, you don't have to fucking punch someone in the back of the head to enjoy a show. You can actually be up front and sing along. So for me, it's, it's important to, uh, to capture that. Cause it's all, it's, it's telling a story about the band, but it's also telling a story about the scene and how the community is, um, Behave, maybe behaving is the wrong term, but they're sort of acting um, at that moment in time and at that era. So, you know, looking back, you know, and maybe in 10 years, I'll look back and watch this stuff and be like, man, this era was a lot of this type of dancing and, you know, not as much as this, but I want to be able to uh, be able to look back and get a wide, um, you know, be able to be able to look at it from a 20,000 perspective, 20,000 foot perspective, as opposed to only filming, you know, beat down bands and only getting a very narrow scope of it. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great mission because, like, I mean, essentially, it's just the you know the scene that we exist in is a microcosm of the you know what's happening from either a pop culture or entertainment perspective. You know, in general, most of it is rallying against it, but it's just a microcosm of it, and it's like a little sociological window into how this scene is behaving to you know either rail against what's happening you know in a larger culture. And I think it is interesting to see where it's like you know I mean people get nostalgic and lament all the time or it's like oh you know no one has like distros or like you know food not bombs tables and stuff like that and it's like well yeah because most people would not even know what to do with that if it existed in this day and age it would, it would just be this this leper in the corner you know yeah right <laughs> but yeah but i i think that's really uh that, that's a it's, it's a good way to to like you said focus kind of what is happening at that current moment that's really cool well dude Thanks for hanging, man. I really appreciate you, uh, yeah, giving some thoughtful responses, and um, yeah, it was uh, it was really fun for me. Yeah, no, I'm glad we got to finally do this. This is really cool. This is one of the more uh, like a lot of the interviews I do are like really surface level, but this really um, I felt like uh, I got to dive into more detail about things I don't uh, always get to, to always get to talk about. So I appreciate that. It's like you just hit the mission of this podcast, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. I don't know why. The who yeah. It just felt right. It was a little Randy Savage there, except it's not the oh, yeah. Anyways, I'm not going to do that. Thank you very much, Sonny, for coming on the show. And I, I always really, I, I genuinely mean thank you. Like, I'm not just saying it because I guess that's what you say at the end of an episode or like, oh, thank you for listening. It's like, no, like, I really, really, really mean it. Like, this is something I very much appreciate because people are giving their time to me. You're giving your time to me. I really, really do appreciate that. So 
Shout out to Sonny for coming on the show. And uh, next week, I have a doozy of an episode because there is a tale that is uh, unfurled before me as we're uh, you know in the middle of this uh, this this interview slash conversation I'm having. Lauren Cashin, who is the vocalist for a band called Sharptooth, who just recently completed a huge run on Warp Tour, the final Warp Tour. And um, yeah, this was such a good episode because um, I went into it with uh, expectations that were, I don't know, just tempered. I was like, okay, this will be a cool, cool chat. I'm not like a huge fan of the band. It's cool. But then uh, once we got into it, I not only did I uh, come away feeling much more uh, passionate about the band, but uh, yeah, she did. Let me put it this way. She's in a cult for a year. Okay. Let's just put that out there. All right. So if that isn't a tease for next week, I don't know what is. But um, yeah, and those of you that uh, have asked about my wife, she uh, passed her first like blood test, which was incredible, and I love that. And it feels really good to say that. <laughs> she has one more test that she is actually doing. Um, yeah, this week and uh, hopefully the following week, I will be able to report positively to you all in that as well. So, anyways, until then, please be safe, everybody. Also, shout out to the homies we transfer. They're on a mission to make the internet a nicer, simpler, more beautiful place. That's why they built their site to send files with no logins, no passwords, and no privacy intrusions. You can send huge files and see what they stand for at we.tl slash not creepy. You make, we transfer. I love it. All right, now for real. I'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.